So welcome to Cryptic. My name is Federica Goffi. I'm an associate professor uh, and the co-chair of the PhD program at the Atrieli School of Architecture and Urbanism. And with me today from Carlton University, we have three of our PhD students, Christine Washko, uh, Marco Yannis, and Nicolas Arellano Riso Patron, and two of our Master of Architecture students, Amanda Lapointe and Devon Moore. And together we're going to interview Professor Jill Stoner, the director of our school, the Azrieli School of Architecture and Urbanism at Carleton University. So thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure. So we wanted to start with uh, a series of questions about your book, Towards a Minor Architecture, published in 2012 by MIT Press. I hope and someone has a copy of the book here. Yes. Uh, well, we have the digital copy right now. We have. Yes. <laughs> and, um, uh, I guess ask you about the motivations and the process for writing the book. That's a big question. Yes. Um, so, um, you know, I had a, a lot of material for a book, but I did not really have a uh, direction for the book that I thought was clear enough. And what what I was wanting to do was to make sense of my own architectural practice, um, not by talking about the practice, but somehow by creating a, a narrative about a certain cultural moment that I thought was really important. And by, by cultural moment, I mean something that started maybe somewhere in the early 70s, um, and I think continues until this day. Um, around 1986, and my, my architectural education was in a fairly classical, meaning classical modern tradition at Penn, around sometime in the mid-80s, I began to look at the built landscape differently. I, I saw uh, buildings being built basically everywhere, filling, filling up the landscape. Uh, they were never talked about. They weren't designed by any architects that anybody knew. Um, and meanwhile, the profession continued to look for excellence, I thought, in, in a very specific way. So I began to wonder what would happen to all this stuff that we were building. Uh, and to think about it really as a new natural landscape, as a, a kind of given condition that we would sooner or later have to respond to. Um, at you know, maybe another moment, and there were several financial crises you know, through, through the decades, but at the time of one of those crises, uh, I began to see that not only were those buildings sitting there, but many of them were vacant. And so they began to seem even more like a natural condition rather than a, a kind of occupied and, and productive condition. And when I opened my practice in 1994, I made a very specific decision to only work within existing buildings, to try to mine the spaces that we were uh, taking for granted, not calling architecture, but uh, my sense was they were, they were underdeveloped, underused, and that there was something to be said for uh, paying attention to things that nobody else was paying attention to. So this was not about historic preservation or honoring one building over another. It was really about uh, considering all spaces as equal. 
all built spaces as equal and looking for how they could become more productive particularly more productive in service of you know what I would call the public so um, my my own practice focused on schools libraries renovations um, because those were opportunities that showed themselves uh, in San Francisco where I was at the time being a woman-owned firm there were you know uh, small projects always being put out there and I you know I took advantage of those opportunities and loved them um, and had had spoken at one point about a moratorium on new buildings so I think I I said this maybe uh, you know again in the in the mid 80s what you know what if we stopped and this was about the United States not about the world where populations are exploding but a part of the world where populations were actually staying static or even going down a little bit what if we stopped building new buildings what if we assumed that what we had built is accommodating our population, but could accommodate it better. So um, the uh, Toward a Minor Architecture was written in the spirit of uh, let us consider uh, a, a kind of untapped resource for what we do as architects. Um, the, um, the focus of the book, the book actually crystallized when I reread something that I had read uh, decades before um, or, or years before um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari's book on Kafka uh, called Toward a Minor Literature. And when I had first read it, I read it only trying to understand Kafka better. But uh, as I began to understand Deleuze's uh, affect on um, architectural thinking and particularly um, uh, intellectual architectural thinking, I saw a, a kind of structure within that book, that analysis of what they called a minor literature that actually perfectly fit like a glove my own concept of what I had been doing in my practice. And so their principles, um, I began to rewrite um, uh, the de-territorialization, you know, et cetera, as a way to understand three things that on analysis I had actually been doing in my practice, which was to turn the interior inside out, to make it less hermetic, to break through walls, to get rid of thinking about architecture as a collection of objects, to stop thinking about the architect as the subject of the work, he who makes the work um, famous and known, and to stop thinking about nature as this uh, primordial condition, and rather as a condition simply that was not the beginning of everything, which is where the word nature comes from, birth, but the beginning of now. So uh, 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 incorporating the built landscape into this particular idea of nature made sense to me. It, it, it's the point of departure. It's the birth of what we do from, from, from here on. So once, and, and you know, that happened very quickly. So all of a sudden, all of this material uh, it kind of fell into these four chapters um, in, in a very uh, natural way. There was almost nothing that I had put together from all of my literary references and from my cultural references that didn't actually map itself into that structure, which was borrowed. Um, pretty directly from uh, from a 
piece of literary criticism. Thank you. So I guess uh, you know, it's very interesting to, to see how the book is really coming out of the practice, you know, and this idea of really making sense of that. And I guess I wonder if your earlier studies in literature and even your other book, you know, Poems for mm. Architects, you know, how does that fit into your approach to criticism in architecture? Yeah, it, it fits um, very uh, specifically. So, uh, I mean, here, here is the, the first book, and I studied poetry as an undergraduate. I wrote something that, you know, uh, in, in retrospect, I mean, it wasn't at the level of a dissertation, but it was close. It was, a, you know, a two-year project with, you know, deep, deep readings basically covering all of the critical material on two poets and developing reciprocity between them. And um, at that time, I, uh, you know, I was at least somewhat anticipating a career in literature. I didn't know whether I would go toward architecture or toward literature. But what that study of these two poets did um, was to get me to think about what I called the voice of the poet and the voice of the tribe. That idea of uh, kind of manifesting an individual voice through one's work versus manifesting the voice of the, the collective, that one was writing for people rather than for oneself. And so when I moved to architecture, um, again, that mapped directly into thinking about not working as a, as a subject, creating one's own body of work, but actually working to try to express the voice of people who were not designing and not building. Um, and, and to kind of internalize somehow what it is that uh, a broader culture wants. So, so the poetry, you know, to architecture uh, translated in that way. On the other hand, fiction to me uh, had always really been um, a way of understanding culture um, in a, in a way that had no um, kind of specific agenda behind it. In other words, I've always felt that fiction writers are the, the least political of all writers in terms of a kind of partisanship um, and able to illuminate um, cultural conditions that the, the rest of us might not be focused on so clearly. So at one point I developed a, um, a website. I realized I stopped paying the um, what do you call it? The monthly. Uh, so it so it's gone, and it's like years of my life just just disappeared somewhere. But it was called uh, quotes for architects, and it was really everything that I had pulled out of literature over a period of like twenty years that I thought might have some kind of you know, message. But a lot of that is in the um, Toward a Minor Architecture book. There's a couple of um, bits of poems in there, but mostly it comes from fiction. And, uh, it, you know, through characters, I think particularly contemporary fiction writers actually do illuminate some of the frustrations that we have with the built landscape. Um, not necessarily meaning to do that. I think very often John Updike, for instance, is someone who I thought had an incredible sense of what the suburban landscape was, was doing to us spatially. But I'm not sure he ever 
thought to articulate it specifically as a you know a perspective about architecture. It was simply that the way things were built was somehow inhibiting our uh, our daily life and our connections with one another. So so it's a very deep connection. Um, I you know I, I think there is the authenticity of the the fiction writer and the the poets voice that is worth us paying attention to. Thank you very much. So I think uh, you, you almost answered the next question of what can architectural research and practice learn from narrative, but I wonder if uh, perhaps you think that there's a, a, a difference uh, in architectural research and practice in terms of their relationship with narrative. What do you mean by architectural research? Well, I think uh, just the, the asking of architectural questions and perhaps the framing of an argument, if you see that there's a, a you know, a different approach. Yeah, uh, I mean, I always do a direct, you know, thesis students, for example, mm -hmm. to, to read a novel, mm -hmm. but I don't expect that that will inform their work mm -hmm. as in, in exactly the same way that it has informed my own work. Mm -hmm. So, so. I mean, I guess there's a certain kind of authenticity in research also, and I fully <coughs> expect that someone could find it, for instance, in cooking. Um, I mean, and I, I reference cooking sometimes, but I think someone who is as serious about food as I feel I am about fiction could find all kinds of incredible analogies in the way we shop, the way we put things together, the way we think about um, uh, isolating, you know, uh, flavors, the way the course of a meal plays itself out, um, the way uh, food is treated uh, differently through different aspects of culture. So that's one example. Um, many people find a much more, a much deeper resonance between music and architecture than between, say, fiction and architecture. And I respect that path and that research also, but it would take those people to talk in a meaningful way about the connection because I just, I don't feel I understand music well and I don't feel like I can articulate what that is. Um, you know, I have a, a student who, you know, sewing became um, for her the way of, of understanding, a, you know, a more productive way of thinking about her own design research as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, for me, you know, the fiction is the most powerful, but I do think there's many other points of reference mm -hmm. that can become fruitful analogies to architectural research. Mm -hmm. So I guess in that same vein, the uh, sort of, what do you see as the relationship between making and you know, I was going to say writing in relation to your practice, but the, the sort of what is gained in the back and forth of making and exploring another discipline, whether it be writing, cooking, um, Yeah, and, and maybe it's not another discipline. Right. You know, maybe it's simply materiality. So mm -hmm. through exploring materiality, one thinks differently about the city. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I could expect something to come out of, for instance, Cheryl Boyle's research, you know, that has an urban dimension. I don't know what that would be. It doesn't look like it has an urban dimension. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, I, I would not be at all surprised if through that research, it uncovers, you know, a much kind of broader 
cultural connection. So, um, uh, yeah, I think one's research as a practitioner has to be coming from uh, a, a set of personal interests. I think one's research as an academic um, can follow a, a, a much um, kind of narrower prescription of, you know, this is what we need to do as, as academic researchers. We need to exhaust the literature and pull, pull things out of it and, and make those connections within it. I don't think academic research requires looking outside of itself necessarily, but as, as, a, as a practice, uh, if one is practicing, um, I do think that um, kind of being aware of one's other um, focuses of value, passions, yeah. yeah, passions can make an enormous difference in um, how, how one practices. You've already touched on it a little bit with your explanation of uh, nature, but can you expand on the concept of minor architecture as a metropolitan landscape of regretful construction? Well, it doesn't, that is not what minor architecture is. That is the site of minor architecture. So it is all of those buildings, particularly built since World War II, you know, in the hinterlands, um, in a kind of willy nilly, let's just build some stuff, let's get some square footage there so that. Uh, you know, we can put cubicles in them and let's, you know, build the parking lot so that these people mm -hmm. can park there and, and go in and, and work in their cubicles. So it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a landscape that I became particularly interested in myself, more so than uh, the corporate landscape of, you know, financial districts and cities. Those are fascinating to me too, but I feel that they have a certain kind of uh, density that makes sense. So, for instance, the graduate studios that I taught at Berkeley for a very long time focused on the, um, the, the buildings around the airport, you know, those that were really just kind of taking advantage of open land uh, that was, you know, fairly inexpensive, um, uh, you know, paving over wetlands along the San Francisco Bay. Uh, providing, um, you know, three-star hotels for people flying in and out, uh, all very, uh, you know, cookie-cutter approaches to building typologies. So, I mean, I call them regretful constructions uh, only as a point of departure. So the point of those studios was to prove that we can make up for our regretful constructions by paying attention to them by honoring them as a kind of a, a point of departure. And some very beautiful work came out of those studios. That's fascinating. I, I'm gonna slightly change my question, uh, just basically uh, to touch on what you've been talking about. Um, the original one was, is there a boundary between minor and major architecture? But I wanna change that to, is there a connection between minor and major ar architecture in the same sense that maybe in fiction, there are connections between the main characters and the uh, and so, side so it's characters. not about main and side characters. Okay. Uh, Delusion Guattari's framing of minor literature okay. was uh, a minor writing written in a major language. So Kafka wrote in German, um, and he was Czech, and in by writing in German, he was taking this language of the masters, 
a, a master language, a language of you know Hegel and uh, you know this this whole tradition of a kind of Germanic way of 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 putting uh, you know putting thoughts together that had this uh, kind of aura of of mastery about it, and by writing. Uh, his extremely disruptive stories in this language, he was working from inside this major construction. So my analogy to that is that corporations build these buildings, they plop them down. They, they are the masters of our economy and our politics now. So if we go in there as architects and we break through walls and we you know, make windows where there were no windows, and we, uh, you know, engage the space in ways that is not about segmenting people. If we bridge between them, uh, we are essentially operating within the master language. Mm. So to hate all languages of masters is the opening epigraph in the book, uh, and and you know, hate is a strong word, but uh, that that kind of political energy to operate within the master language requires a certain kind of passion, a certain desire to kind of overthrow or overcome um, that kind of mastery. So, so that's, that's where major and minor fit together. Okay. So to go inside the major and to work as a way of, of disrupting it within that major language, within that major construction. Okay. Um, is is where that relationship really finds its its tension and its agency. Okay. So Kafka, for instance, you know, in in the trial, you know, this this you know poor you know hapless character Joseph K. You know, he's arrested. He finds himself inside a courtroom. He you know punches you know punches through a wall. He's suddenly in this painter's studio. Um, he's uh, you know he's he's also working within a major kind of architectural framework, the claustrophobic city, and finding these uh, apertures that lead him into a completely different kind of setting. It doesn't work out so well for him. Okay. But, but we hope that um, working in a minor way can actually be liberating rather than having a tragic consequence. Okay. Again, I'm going to reword this question because it's uh, not uh, conducive to what we've been talking about. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask instead, um, like within the major architecture, like the, the minor interventions, mm -hmm. uh, do, you, do you find them to be more of a personal, um, um, more personal, more intimate sort of um, sometimes relationships between the person or a group of people well sometimes like the, I mean the prison examples that I use you know this communicating through a prison wall mm -hmm. is always a question of intimacy um, when I was writing this book I actually visited a university in the states and uh, I think it was in Utah maybe um, and the person hosting me took me, you know, through through their building, and you know, there's the planning department, and there's the architecture department, and they have nothing to do with each other, as in many universities. And he had done this tiny little subversive thing. He had drilled a hole between the administrative office of the planning department and the administrative office of the architecture department, 
and he pulled a string through and he took a you know a tin can mm. and you know like the kids do with the with the <laughs> telephones and you know he just he did this for fun but I was I was working on this book at the time and I said whoa this is it you know this is an example of, of a minor act it's like a silly little thing but um, it's anything from that to something much more profound, you know, that can happen, uh, you know, say at the uh, U.S.-Mexican border, you know, uh, a tunnel being being dug under under that wall. There's there's a, a kind of minor um, act, you know, that is disrupting the majority. Uh, gesture of the wall that keeps people from passing through. Or my former colleague, Ron Rael, uh, who's been focused on the wall for a long time, who recently did the pink uh, swings. Did you guys see that? You know, so, so there's, a, there's a piece that uh, is operating, you know, at a small scale. It didn't cost much to build that, but it's also operating at a scale of nations. So like second part of the question, so then can, can a major architectural uh, building or program be designed to accommodate the minor? Does that exist or? Well, it, it's, it, that, that's a contradiction in terms. Right, okay. It, okay. Is, it, it, it is a contradiction. Um, it leave space or something for that to happen or, or? Well, it always does leave space. Okay. We just don't, the, the architect just doesn't know it. Okay. When he builds it, he or she. Um, but usually it's he, because I, I do think that, you know, there, I mean, people always ask me, oh, you're a feminist architect. I said, what is that? <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're operating, you know, in a, in a different way. You're operating in a way that connects things rather than dividing things. It's synthetic rather than analytical. So I had never, I had never thought uh, about that at all. So now I do think about it because lots of people are writing about mm -hmm. it. Like if you're writing something, there's always going to be space between the lines, like yeah, no matter sure, what. Sure, yeah, okay. sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I mean, to to consciously, uh, I, I mean, I would say, I, I'll take it back a little bit because there might be a certain kind of client, you know, that one would be so beholden to, and you, you know, you need you need commissions to work, so. Um, you are honoring the program of that client. And I would say a good architect would find ways to leave room for things to change without the client knowing, because the client would object to those potential disruptions later. So it could be something very, very simple, you know, like there's a, a bunch of, of concrete walls, but you you know, you do one of them in studs instead because you think that wall actually shouldn't be there. Um, that's, a, that's a silly little example, but I, I do think that there could be a way if uh, it's not the architect who is so much in charge of what is happening, but it's a client who has a kind of master approach to what's being built and, and wants to affect a condition of permanence. And if one thinks, aha, permanence is maybe not uh, the best way to set things up for the future, then yes, I would say architects could be um, clever in how they leave opportunities for openings that would not be there at the beginning. Do you mind if I just interject really quickly? So 
the way you're describing it, uh, and just for my own understanding, minor architecture in a way is emerging in response to the master. Absolutely. Okay. It can only emerge in response to the master. So it's not necessarily the architect, it's really just a, res it's, it's really a response to... The architect is an agent. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think you, yeah, you've hinted at some of this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. In your view, does minor architecture have a relationship to vernacular architecture and or architecture with ar architects? Mm. People have asked me that a lot. Mm. And the more, uh, the more time I spend in Canada and thinking about the Canadian North and indigenous ways of thinking, uh, I think there is a very strong relationship. So with the vernacular, for instance, um, just in the, in the simplest sense, people change things all the time. Like vernacular architecture is constantly being rebuilt mm -hmm. and rethought with, you know, additions and taking down walls and, you know, pitching the roof differently because the snow is too heavy. I mean, it's, it's always in, in flux and in process. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think um, there, uh, it, it's not minor in the political sense because they are not operating against something unless you consider uh, simply harsh conditions to be the something that they're operating against. So the the heart, the idea of the harsh condition uh, in you know the developed world tends to be uh, you know a kind of um, masterful corporate claiming of of the built landscape maybe you know in other places you could argue that the harsh condition is is climate mm. or you know uh, climate change or uh, you know wild animals or um, shifting patterns of availability of fish or something which requires a certain kind of nimbleness i don't think it's the same mm. um, and it's not uh, you know, I, f I do feel like people have paid attention to it for you know quite a long time and extracted really valuable lessons from it from the vernacular in terms of how to how to build in a you know in a more major way. Um, so you know my focus was much more on the uh, the kind of resistance to things that are are culturally imposed mm. on the built landscape. But I do think there's. There's certainly a connection. One could probably make fruitful analogies back and forth, um, <clears throat> certainly in terms of the idea of the subject. Uh, you know, I mean, by definition, the vernacular is not associated with fame and, mm -hmm. you know, and individuals. So it definitely fits there. I think um, the notion of the interior, not so applicable because very often the vernacular is really about uh, a protection from external forces, and so the interior, I think, becomes extremely important in the vernacular. So, so some things map back and forth, right. and some things don't. Um, the second part of the question, uh, I guess I'm going to rephrase it slightly, but can can minor architecture be designed? Or is it always sort of come out, sort of emerge, sort of organically? Well, it has to. I mean, if we're architects, we are designing, okay. right? But uh, but again, um, when I am designing, I think of myself as uh, an agent, mm -hmm. um, and so I'm looking for what uh, you know. What are the forces that 
that I am responding to and who am I really who or what am I really designing for um, so um, yes it can be designed um, but but I think uh, it requires a certain kind of um, shift maybe from the traditional ways that we are taught to respond to clients' mm. wishes. Great, thank you. So I guess from your experience as both a practitioner and an academic, what constitutes research in or through minor architecture in an <coughs> academic setting? In an academic setting, well, a studio that does um, adaptive reuse. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, I. When I came, I taught the Gateway Studio with Cheryl Boyle, and we shifted from new building to adaptation. And to me, it's just um, it's a way of getting familiar with the feeling that working inside existing buildings is not secondary. It's not lesser than building new buildings. Um, it's uh, you know, it's maybe not always um, aligned with the kind of politics that that I'm thinking about, but um, I have also noticed that um, more and more uh, thesis work, Master of Architecture thesis work, is directed at responding to built conditions, um, and less and less about making, you know, a thing that we would call a building. When I was in architecture school, that was the only kind of thesis that was acceptable. We had to design a building. It had to have foundations, mechanical systems, structural engineers signing off on it, outline specs. You know, it it was this um, it was this expectation. This is what architects do. So I think expanding um, just the message that well, that's one of the things that architects do. Um, it's not the only thing that architects do, and and you know my position in North America, it is not the most important thing that architects do. Uh, and sort of understanding that um, both at the urban scale and at the scale of details, there are plenty of ways to work uh, as you know what I would call a, a minoritarian or you know someone who is responding to something that has been built. Uh, by the powerful, by 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 systems of power, and and I do feel like um, there is a shift in uh, the culture such that this no longer seems like a strange idea in schools of architecture, and it was a strange idea 25 years ago when I taught my first um, what I called architecture by subtraction studio at Berkeley in 19, around 1993 maybe. Um, people were furious, you know, that this this was somehow not legitimate. It was not a legitimate way to educate architects, that you could actually take things away from a building, which I always think of as making space, right? As soon as you remove material, you're making space. So shifting, you know, shifting the message from architects don't make buildings, they make space, is the simplest way that I can articulate how this works in a school of architecture. It's, it's just substituting one word for another. Thank you, that's wonderful. Okay. Thank you.
So I had the chance of reading Torah minor architecture in Spanish, so mm. hacia una arquitectura menor. First of all, it's a really good translation, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, but what were the motivation for translation this particular book in this particular language? And also, are there other languages that uh, are on your agenda? Yeah, so what happens with books, I have nothing to do with translations. Okay. I get a message from MIT Press that says, we've just sold translation rights to a publisher in Spain. Okay, perfect. Uh, that, that's how it happens. Um, I had always assumed that if it got translated, it would get translated into French because it really comes from French sources. Yeah. So I would love to see it translated into French. Um, I, I re would absolutely love that. Um, and there's a, you know, a fair bit of uh, you know, a, a Italian reference too. Um, but I guess in terms of where the book um, could maybe um, resonate, you know, in in today's world. Uh, I mean, I just came back from Sao Paulo, uh, and um, our students are are going. You know, some students are going there for a six week studio, and there's so much happening in cities like Sao Paulo that are, in fact, about subversive actions on existing buildings. You know, I'd love to see it translated into um, Portuguese, yeah. and maybe the Spanish translation will make its way to South America. Yeah, right. If you have any any way to uh -huh. to help that happen, you know, like places like um, you know Mexico City and uh, uh, you know Santiago, I I think there's already so much of this yeah. going on. Uh, you know, the I mean the, the Tower of David, mm -hmm. right, in, yeah. in Caracas is. A reference for me. It, it is about how people take possession of something that's been built by, you know, a billionaire and, uh, you know, and tinker with it and, and make it home for 2,500 people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in a way, maybe the, build, the book has already become redundant in places like that, but, but maybe not. Maybe it would find a home, you know, in uh, places that are already doing these kinds of things much mm -hmm. more than they are in uh, North America. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks so much. I'm glad to hear it's a good translation. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and I would, I, I, I would actually love to, um, you know, invite her here at some point. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I, I had the chance of comparing some of the... Yeah. Some of the yeah. Have one more? Yes. Uh, also, uh, could the practice of architectural research in academic context be a way of practicing uh, minor architecture? I, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, so for, by architectural um, research, like the thing that we are doing here, for example, in the PAD or in the PMAS, uh, would that be a way of practicing minor architecture or it have to be like a physical act? It has to be physical. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, you can certainly contribute, yeah. right? You can contribute through your work to the way people um, behave. Uh, I mean, I, I call it something, right? I've given it a name, but uh, other people have written things that also influence, uh, you know, this, this kind of um, spontaneous acts in public space or, you know, the uh, making sort of political what we what we do in the in the built landscape so um, uh, you know I, I think it does uh, come down to action 
Um, it's it's a it's a really interesting question right now. I mean, I'm finding that um, journalism, uh, which is the most political kind of writing, you know, has found uh, I think a new level of importance in the past three years, both you know because of the the U.S. Po politics, but also you know other other parts of the world as well. I'm I'm finding. Um, much more journalism, uh, quality journalism than uh, you know we saw ten years ago. It's it's kind of amazing. So um, I, I think it is uh, it's a counterpoint to physical actions in the world. It's verbal actions in the world that are about resistance and about playing off against the the kind of major voices. Um, and I think it remains to be seen whether simply those voices have agency. But there is something very specific to the academic context, which is that it's not out in the world. By definition, it's not out in the world. So it, it is, um, even though um, you know, we all have politics, we all think politically, our work within within the institution is by definition, I would say, apolitical. Once it gets written and gets out there, it can certainly have uh, affect. But I would say if you you know if you are writing for a non academic audience, you are half academic, half journalist. You're, you're becoming a voice that is, is about resonating outside of the academy. So I guess we have a questions about the difference between architectural design and architectural research. Should we mind the gap? Well, I mean, plenty of people now um, argue that design is research. And certainly, you know, all people who join uh, an academic context as designers uh, and and don't necessarily plan to write books mm -hmm. or open labs think of their design work as their research mm -hmm. so um, it is a it's a particular approach to design it's a design that is not driven by uh, clients but it's driven by questions uh, other than that um, I mean, I did a lot of design research outside of my practice, and it was, you know, normally in the form of competitions. So, you, you know, you find something as, as it's a kind of foundation, you take an idea, um, and you argue, for instance, there was a competition uh, to do um, uh, a visitor's, uh, how, how was it put, I can't, I can't remember, a kind of visitor's zoo on this site in Argentina, Buenos Aires, which uh, was a dump for um, uh, building roads, but then all of a sudden developed into this ecosystem wetland with all these animals and everything, and there was an architectural competition to do, uh, you know, a kind of uh, architecture, you know, for the animals and, and humans and so forth, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to do the contra, I'm going to do the against the zoo. So I did something called contra zoo. And it was simply a, a kind of barricade to keep humans out of the site rather than allow them into the site. And they could only visit the site by looking through these 
apertures, we won second place in that way. So, so that's what I would call design research, right? You, you have an idea, you find a design venue rather than uh, you know, an article, and you do a design rather than writing an essay to put forth uh, a, an opinion about something. And, and, to, and to further your own thinking about that thing also. Yeah, the, my next question, you kind of answered it. I'll ask it anyway. Maybe we'll kindle some other mm. examples. But uh, uh, referring back to your comment about the architect being like clever, having to be clever, and being uh, an agent of the master, uh, what is the role of academia in relation to practice in advancing the profession of architecture? So how can the architect also be an agent of knowledge expressed in design, like in contrast with that master? So you, you know, inserting some little moves here and there, like mm. you were saying, the stud wall. Yeah. Uh, how can we bring things we know to be true or, or valuable uh, into a design that may not otherwise have room for it? Yeah. You know. No, I mean it's a very it's a it's a very tough thing. Um, I you know I left practice after fourteen years because mm -hmm. I felt. As much as I felt I was, you know, occasionally succeeding, um, just as many times I felt like I was unable to um, to succeed in the way that I would frame success. Um, so, uh, you know, clients are very powerful. Um, they are, you know, they're they're paying fees. Um, they have their own agenda. Uh, so, you know, I mean, good intentions normally aren't enough in practice, and and I think many architects anyway are are just they are more concerned about you know doing the project in order to get the next project. You know, they've got twenty people working for them. They have this huge payroll and all this liability insurance and. Um, uh, you know, for some, maybe it's a, a bit of a capitulation. For others, I think it's simply, you know, what they take for granted as the nature of the profession. And for those that um, want to practice differently, uh, I mean, what I always say to people is, if you want to practice without the burden of having to earn a living at it, become an academic. <laughs> And, and then you can you can have a practice that is uh, really a, a research practice and you simply only have as many people working for you as you can afford to pay at any given time. So that, I mean, that was my approach. And it still didn't quite, uh, it still took way too much time away from my academic responsibilities. And I just, after all those years, I just realized I was not paying enough attention to the institution that was actually paying me and I was paying way too much attention to this other thing where uh, it was so so hard you know to find the opportunities that that I really wanted to do as a kind of uh, action you know as a, a kind of activist in the in the built world so it's just it's just very hard um, and uh, you know I, I have lots of admiration for the people Managed to do it. I don't know if that answers the question. It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So the next series of questions are: we frame them as minor architecture in the professional context. 
Um, so in your book, Toward a Minor Architecture, and you touched on this briefly just now, uh, you discuss minor architecture as practice. Uh, what is your definition of an architectural practice? How has this influenced your own practice, and did you find ways to practice minor architecture? Yeah, so, I mean, the answer is yes, I did find ways. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how I would um, count, you know, the number of projects uh, that I was able to do that really was totally satisfying to mm. me in terms of operating, you know, within these uh, existing contexts. Um, but, I mean, one of them, uh, you know, we did a lot of schoolwork and, you know, what happens is you, you know, you start with, you know, moving a broom closet, and, you know, this tiny little thing, and then you get to renovate two classrooms, and then, you know, you get to, you know, completely redo the auditorium and the cafeteria, you know, so it, it kind of, Builds up like that, um, the way the the way these qualification systems work. So, we were hired um, a, a school in Oakland uh, High School, which was, you know, in the most kind of fraught part of the city. Uh, you know, uh, you know, completely, uh, almost completely African American school that was struggling with you know the low budgets of you know the public school system and so forth got a really substantial grant from the Gates Foundation to divide into four different high schools, four specialty high schools. And one of them was a School of the Arts. And we won the commission to do this School of the Arts. Um, and uh, the, the campus, the school, assumed that the way to do this new school would be to bring some portable classrooms onto the site and you know arrange them somehow and stuff the program into them. Um, and we, you know, visited the site, and there was an abandoned building on the site. It was the old industrial arts building, um, where they used to teach, you know, auto mechanics and sewing and uh, cooking, you know, the kind of trades that were part of high school curriculums a long time ago. And we said, please, you know, let us try to use that. So uh, they said, okay, try, you know, try. Um, and the building was just uh, a series of concrete walls dividing it into bays for, for each of those things with big garage doors, you know. And so the, the idea was to break through all those concrete walls and make a street that, uh, you know, became the main space of the school. Not, not unlike our street, but single loaded along a daylit edge and, um, it, it was so satisfying to do this project. Um, we, you know, there were windows that were looking out onto a new courtyard, and we um, frosted the glass and etched in quotations by African American authors that were chosen by the faculty and staff. So instead of the students looking out, you know, onto a chain link fence at the edge of the property, they were, you know, reading things, and there were, you know, books like, uh, you know, at these windows being daylit and Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, speech was stenciled onto a wall where the students would come out into the hall and learn to recite it by heart. I mean, there were just all these lovely opportunities. And, you know, the first gesture was this literal breaking through walls. Um, and, you know, we went in with a, a spray can and just sprayed the opening on the wall and sprayed in graffiti cut here you know, for, for those first cuts to kind of emphasize 
you know, this this is what we're doing, and we're kind of doing it in this language of you know urban, um, you know urban resistance. This kind of graffiti art. Um, so this you know this was at the end of of ten years of building up small bits and pieces of you know library work and school work and some nonprofit work and. Uh, when, when we finished that project, that was when I decided to, to leave the office to my partner because I, I realized, you know, if it would take another 10 years to do another one of those, you know, uh, I'd, never, I'd never write a book, right? So um, there were some extremely satisfying moments, but a lot of other stuff in between, which was just, um, to me, because I just took it all, so I just took it all in in a very uh, emotional way. You know, it was just like um, being having someone break up with me, like every every couple of weeks. You know, it was that level of disappointment when you lose a project, or or suddenly, you know, someone comes in and says, "No, you can't do that. You're going to do it like this instead." Um, so again, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, that was really beautiful. But, yeah. um, that was a great story. Um, this one's sort of to do with timing, I guess. At the beginning of your book, you ask, where in the world is architecture going? Uh, do you believe architecture is shifting, will shift, or has shifted towards modern architecture? Yeah, I do. Um, but I'm not sure how much. Mm. And I'm not sure it's shifting uh, enough to make up for all of the Dubai's and mm -hmm. uh, um, bad additions to the Chateau Laurier <laughs> and what will probably happen in Le Breton Flats mm -hmm. and what did happen with Chaudier Fault. You know, I'm, I'm just not sure we can, uh, we can anticipate anything more than just, just to keep, uh, keep on keeping on. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if this is the right moment to uh, to bring up another, you know, quote project. But in this building, um, you know, the campus uh, is <clears throat> they're making their way across campus FMP, and they're redoing the bathrooms in all the buildings on campus. And they they have the list. These are the priorities. So our card came up, right? Our card is up for for next. This construction will start in May. And I've been determined for years now since I dealt with um, graduate student uh, grievances at uh, UC Berkeley um, about uh, transgender students not having any bathrooms accessible to them to simply go all to um, all-inclusive mm -hmm. restrooms in this building. So um, that is about taking down a, a barrier, right? It's, it's about like getting rid of a binary distinction in physical space, in physical form. There's, in a way, nothing that goes as much to the heart of the matter as something like this. It's a, it's a huge paradigm shift. It's, it's coming. Uh, it will be written into code, you know, but I want to be ahead of the code and not following the code. So the amount of work that we need to go through to get permits is absolutely insane. And in fact, what we're going to have to do is put up signs and then take them down. So we need to design <laughs> in anticipation of this being, you know, an all-inclusive landscape in all the restrooms in this building. 
but we must maintain the code requirements for gendered washrooms to get our permits. And everybody knows what we're doing. Everybody knows, you know, it's like you, you have to do the certain lights and you know you're gonna change it to a, you know, an incandescent after construction is finished. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, there, there's a kind of subversion um, to getting to a certain place where you, um, you know, you're spending more time, more effort, uh, I brought in, you know, two colleagues and we basically said to the architect who was hired by the campus, you have to believe in this as much as we do. We have to get it right. And if you want to know what getting it wrong is, go to the Stacy building. They just finished the first all-inclusive washroom on campus. Go take a walk over there. It's on the ground floor. You will see what doing it wrong means. It's an absolute failure and people will not use it. People will th feel threatened. Um, it's, uh, it's exactly the opposite of what it would take to feel inclusive. Mm -hmm. So this is something, you know, it's in real time. It, it is practice, right? We couldn't have the architect design it. We had to actually design it um, and give it to the architect and we had to do all kinds of research to understand what makes people comfortable in this new kind of space that is not about dividing two things out, but of, of trying to merge them together. So um, you, you talk, or you write of minor architects delighting in uh, quote, imperfect, incomplete outcomes. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how that differs from imperfect, incomplete design, mm. and sort of the relationship between those two. Yeah, I mean, again, um, it's an idea that, that seemed new, you know, 10 years ago, but almost every single thesis student now talks like that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't want this to be finished, right? <laughs> I don't want to do something that's finished. I want to allow, you know, change over time. This is a, um, a kind of rhetoric that was like unheard of in past architectural education. Like those words did never come out of a student's mouth. And now they come out of almost every student's <laughs> mouth. And so to me, it is, it's an indication that um, we are really understanding that we cannot any longer think of our discipline as one that claims permanence. And, and I, I do think that uh, while the profession may not be there yet, I think architectural education has somehow gotten there. Mm -hmm. And it's not me, because not many people have read this book. So there's, some, <laughs> there's something else going on that has brought this really um, forward in a kind of remarkable way. Mm -hmm. uh, sort the, of a humbling of the profession in a way? Or? Yeah, and the profession hasn't caught, caught up to that. Right. But I think students have caught up. So I'm, I'm assuming that when students, you know, finish a thesis like that and then go work in some office, you, you know, there's a, I, I don't know what happens. I don't know if, if there is just a, a kind of a, fli a flip of a switch and you move into that other mentality or if students are actually carrying this way of thinking into offices so that in a few more years, um, the profession will actually be, in a way, inundated with new modes of thought that are coming out of architectural education. 
so students I, bring that with them exactly, into practice exactly. rather than leave it behind. Well, yeah. so I don't know which it is yet, mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I, I'd love to just kind of keep an eye on it and mm -hmm. see if, um, you know, and I mean, that's, that's one step, and then the next step is it moving into the realm of, of clients mm -hmm. who still absolutely assume that it's an art of permanence. Like there's there's no kind of broad conversation about when you you know when you build a building that somehow it's not always going to be that way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, the next one, I suspect I know the answer, or at least what you've spoken of in the past. But I wonder if your opinion on this has changed at all recently. Uh, and it's should ethical architects refuse commissions for new buildings? Today? Yeah. Well, I I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that because. Um, even I did one. <laughs> I did one. Uh, I didn't like it so much, you know, when it was done, and I felt like it was a huge mistake. But we were in a joint venture, and I felt compelled to do it. It was a, a branch library in San Francisco, and I had advocated for uh, renovating the existing store. It was a storefront branch, and then they, you know, built a new building. Um, so. You know, I mean, we simply, you know, we have to decide where we want to draw our own lines. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, something like a campus, for instance, you know, there's a new business school because somebody with a lot of money wanted a building named for them. And the campus took advantage of that because they needed more space for the business school. So, so um, you know, there's, there's an understanding that uh, there are certain situations where it just makes sense to build a building. Um, however, uh, there, there could have been many different ways of, of going about that building, right? It could have been built, say, as part of extending the architecture school up, and it could have become something much more uh, urban and integrated and uh, you know in, engaging rather than you know just like another um, another thing mm -hmm. um, so so I, I mean I don't like to suggest rules for people I think you know circumstances are really different mm -hmm. and I think there's plenty of um, good reasons to make new buildings mm -hmm. Um, but understanding the, uh, the magnitude of those choices and how they influence other choices, I don't think is enough of the conversation. And so it's not a way a, to do it, perhaps. Yeah, and it's yeah. not really a part of, of thinking about minor architecture. It's, it's another aspect of the profession. And I, you know, I don't want to claim that this is a new definition for the it's just an it's an option for how to how to be in the profession. Uh, so in the last question, you also touched on into this, but uh, I, I want to talk about in the middle of subject where you ask who will capitalize minor projects or authorize permission to occupy the vacant space, and how does the architect become minor? Become minor. Yeah. Um, it's a rhetorical question. So, yeah, so I'm saying, uh, can, can we... Uh, 
Read, read it again. Yeah, so in, in the in middle subject, you ask who will capitalize minor projects or authorize permission to occupy the vacant spaces? No, what you just pointed to isn't. Um, Sorry, 18. Oh, okay. Oh, I can't. No. Do you want me to zoom? Just not seeing it. It's just quick. Um, that might be helpful. Cut. We'll come back to it. Who will capitalize minor projects? And by that I mean who will pay for them? So that's a very good question. Who who will pay for them? Um, or authorize permission to occupy the vacant spaces? Have you find like? So, um, an answer to that question? Yeah, so, so, I mean, I think there's a few uh, different things that can happen. Um, and th I think the, the second part is maybe a better place to begin, uh, authorized permission to occupy the vacant spaces. So, um, <coughs> just in the most, you know, sort of conventional sense, I was recently in uh, Calgary and they had a few uh, big vacant spaces along one of their main streets and the architecture school asked to use one and the city said sure. And so they moved a studio in there and opened a gallery and uh, you know did some, I, I think they made some minor alterations. Um, you know, so this is a very, very simple kind of thing that can happen. Um, Kathy Smith came from Australia last winter to teach a six-week studio on uh, what she calls meanwhile space, um, you know, what I call occupying vacancy. She's done tons of work in the UK research uh, and in uh, Newcastle, Australia, where she's from. Um, so, so there are many cities now that are recognizing that it is much better to have a meanwhile use in a space than to have windows boarded up. It's, it's just you know, it, it's good for the life of the street, it's good for safety, uh, it's win-win it's all the way across. Uh, you know, more radical versions are uh, where I just was in Sao Paulo, I visited two housing collectives, both of which are occupying vacant buildings mm -hmm. illegally, but one of them now actually has uh, some lawyers working with them to argue for uh, tenant rights and you know, again, you know, this building, there is no way the city is going to uh, kind of claim it and take care of it, and it's better to have people living in it uh, than not living in it. Um, we extended that conversation a little bit while I was down there to say, you know, what would it, what would it cost for the city to, um, it was I think a 12-story building maybe, what would it take for the city to invest in an elevator because the elevators have, haven't worked for decades, you know, and, and how, how would that pay the city back in terms of, um, you know, less, uh, you know, less crime, um, 
you know, less visits to the emergency room, which is a stress on the medical system and, and so forth. So I think there's a certain logic um, to uh, how, how to appropriate vacancy in really productive ways. And again, you know, 10 years ago, in some very short amount of time, there was much less of that than there is now. And so when I, you know, when I was first writing about it, I didn't have examples, and now I do. Um, I took a sabbatical from Berkeley in uh, 2012 and spent a semester in Washington, D.C. as a kind of a fellow at the uh, uh, Office of uh, Housing and Urban Development just to study vacancy in various cities, and so I I wrote a few articles which are online, very very short ones um, on conditions uh, in cities like Cleveland and St. Louis, um, where there were very interesting things happening, both with vacant land and with vacant buildings. It was really this kind of uh, cooperative relationship between uh, cities and nonprofits who were finding ways to make use of, of those spaces. And there's lots going on in Brooklyn now. There are farms on rooftops in Brooklyn. Uh, so it, it has become a thing since, you know, since this book was published. It's become a thing. And I think it will probably gain credibility. Um, you know, Ottawa uh, is a very conservative city. Um, <laughs> I would love to find a way to, to break through. I mean, I was... You know, one of my first thoughts when I came here was let's have a storefront studio. Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't found a way to make that happen yet. Um, but, but you know, I think there, I, I think it is, it's, it's moving along such that uh, it's no longer a weird kind of question. It's actually becoming um, normal. Uh, I'm shifting the conversation a little bit with my next question. Uh, what is the role of spontaneity when architects are designing minor architecture? Is it related to impulse or instinct, um, or are those and, and are those like mutually exclusive uh, reactions? Let's say. Well, I mean, again, every uh, I think every architect um, works differently, so. I mean, I tend to work by instinct, um, but I think lots of other architects find other ways. Um, uh, I mean, you know, focus groups uh, is, uh, I think, a, a legitimate way to think about something when you're when you're working inside a building in particular. So you're working with people who know it really well. Um, and you know, understanding, uh, you know, the the complexity. And actually, I think the I think the um, all inclusive restroom is it's a good example in this building because I thought I thought I had what I needed. You know, I thought I had the instincts that I needed, mm -hmm. but in talking to some people, I realized I I did not. You know, and that there were points of view, uh, you know, that. Um, were incredibly legitimate and that needed to become a part of the process. So, um, you know, ev everything from, uh, you know, cultural reasons to have a higher degree of privacy than, 
you know, is is uh, the, the kind of trend in the all-inclusive restroom um, to understanding, uh, you know, whether it makes more sense to have a certain kind of facility uh, on the main floor or on the studio floor, you know, and uh, it just little things like that. So I think instinct is great, um, but I, I do think we we need to find that balance between, you know, not just asking people what they think and immediately uh, coding coding that into what we're doing because we need to recognize that if we asked other people, it might come out entirely differently and that people may not understand actually the spatial implications of putting an opening here, say. Um, so, so I think there is that balance between um, knowing uh, why we're doing something, like what is, what, what is at the root of our agenda, who, who are we thinking of when we're, when we're doing something, who, who are we trying to serve, or what are we trying to serve, and then uh, kind of checking in on multiple levels to make sure that, and you know, of course you, you get things wrong. And hopefully when you get things wrong, they can be fixed. That um, there is a kind of fluidity to all of these, you know, kind of minor uh, adjustments, minor actions that are, are not irrevocable. So I, I don't think it's a clear, I don't think there's a formula for how to, um, how to, design in this way within existing contexts. I wonder if I could just, uh, going off of this question, spontaneity and something you said before about spray painting the yeah. door with cut here. Yeah. If there's something about the way that architects draw and build and how drawings are sort of translated into building. Yeah, I think, think it's, it's, I think it's a super important question. Yeah. And one of the great joys to me in practice was talking to work, builders. workers, builders. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we don't pay nearly enough attention to their, uh, not only their knowledge, but their capacity for enjoying their work or not enjoying their work. Mm -hmm. And if we, you know, if we want things, I think, to, to progress um, in terms of, you know, this being something that people can do with their lives. We have to find ways to make it fun, to um, take advantage of their intellectual abilities, to honor their intellectual abilities, to understand the um, community involved in uh, construction, and you know, I get I get very upset when I hear conversations about um, you know we're, we're trying to uh, make construction more efficient, so that we can do it cheaper and we don't need so many people. And I, I do think it's one of the one of the professions that people do actually take great pride in and love. And so somehow. Our work it, it relates directly to what these people get to do with their lives, and I, I don't think that that is nearly uh, central enough to the conversations that we have about what we do as architects. 
So, you know, sometimes it's about um, going onto the site, you know, but other times it's about putting something in a drawing that allows for other things to happen. And again, because I just got back from Sao Paulo, uh, Lena Bovardi's um, SASC project, which is the renovation of a huge, you know, sort of industrial complex plus uh, a new building. And, you know, the new building has these uh, openings in it, these weird kind of ovaloid, uh, have you guys know this building with the, the kind of egg-shaped uh, apertures in the concrete wall? I didn't know this, but apparently she just said to the, uh, con you know, the concrete workers, Make some fun shapes in the wall. <laughs> so that's not her, it's them. Well, and it's just, it's just like, the, you know, it's one of those stories. There's no way I think that that wall would be as good, you know, if she had tried to make uh, 20 different openings and make them all different. Mm -hmm. So she simply said, you know, they should be about this big because we need to pull these uh, steel screens in front of them, uh, you know, to keep people from, you know, from falling out, uh, but have fun with it. <laughs> and, you know, it, like every project that that I did, you know, with the schools, they, they, I tried to do something like that, you know, to have something where, okay, here's what we want. We want something that feels like a mailbox outside of each classroom. Um, this was in an elementary school. And, you know, how, how would you do it? And it was this father and son, you know, kind of subcontractor. And they just, they figured out like how to do this wooden thing outside each classroom. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was great. And uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, stenciling things on, on walls and asking someone to, you know, make a sketch that we would then translate into, um, uh, you know, a laser cut stencil and then they would get it back and be able to put the, the stencil on the wall, but I think it's a great question, and I feel like we um, we don't talk about it enough. In Japan, from what I hear, it it happens all the time. Like architects don't do details; they 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 really trust the craftsmen to figure out how to make it, and that there's enough of a a tradition of you know craft mm -hmm. that they might come out differently, but they all come out well. I don't know how true that is anymore, but it feels like uh, it's perhaps becoming, I mean, increasingly harder to find that space in the profession it is. in North America. Uh, uh, it is. I mean, partly because of liability, mm -hmm. partly because mm -hmm. of cost control and, yeah. and time management and, you know, scheduling and all of that. I think it is. And, and it could become, you know, it could become uh, like a required thing somehow that every project have that mm -hmm. space factored into it. Yeah, I guess I, I have a question about uh, a competition that you've done, I think, a few years ago. Corbiale. Yeah, yeah, and I remember you were working here at the school mm. with some colleagues and students. And uh, of course, the Corbiale in Rome is something that you also had written about. Yeah. So perhaps this was on your mind for a while. And I was wondering if the competition gave you an opportunity to, I guess, put, you know, going from the writing to the design. Totally, totally. So, do you guys know Corvialle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you all know it. This mm -hmm. kilometer-long yeah, yeah, building. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, in uh, I think it was 2008, I took a group of students from Berkeley to Rome for a semester, 
to work on that building as their studio project. Um, and so uh, we learned a lot about it um, and visited it many times and met the people who were living there. And um, what was interesting was, uh, you know, Carvioli was built um, in the early 70s for families. And um, what had happened was that, you know, the kids grew up and moved away and the uh, people who had originally moved there were now elderly and were living alone in a three or four bedroom apartment. It's really weird. So the population had shrunk from 8,000 down to, I don't know, 1,200 or, or something. You know, every apartment was occupied, but it was occupied by one person. So it was very, uh, it's kind of a haunting place. And then, you know, all of a sudden there's this international competition to rethink this building. And the year before, the proposal had been to tear it down. And so the uh, Italian, uh, I guess it was the government, commissioned uh, four architects to do schemes for what would happen if it was torn down. And those schemes were this new urbanism, you know, sort of four-story housing with, with landscaping. And I'm not sure all of the politics that went into the decision, okay, we're not gonna tear it down, we're gonna do a competition instead. Um, and uh, I was working with Claudio Scarvi on this, and uh, you know he uh, he brought um, a, a, met a metaphor to our work. Um, it has it's been called uh, the serpent or the monster or whatever this big concrete thing. And so he says, okay, it's going to be the monster that sings. Can you say it in Italian? Mostro che canta. Yeah. Il mostro che canta. Yes, and so you know, it was a, a how, how do you, how do you turn this into a monster that that sings? And um, this, the sort of essence of the design is a very complicated building in terms of how it meets the ground and the underground parking and changes in level and where the stairs are, where the access points are. But there were a few key things that. Um, we wanted to accomplish. One was to completely open up the ground so that, so that the ground level flowed from one side, which is the urban side, to the other side, which is the countryside. So you look out one side of the building and it's farms, you know, with, with uh, sheep grazing. You look out on the other side and it's a kind of, you know, a suburban uh, fabric that goes all the way to, <coughs> to central Rome. So the idea was to open, open that up, to completely clear it out, um, to turn it into a very urban space, a kind of continuous paving um, that would uh, accommodate, um, and this is a thing that, that I think about often, uh, how can you accommodate everyone for dinner? So, you know, imagining, um, you know, apartments getting divided, made smaller, you know, different, different kinds of demographics moving in, and then could everyone have dinner down there on the ground on a nice evening, uh, bringing food from the countryside and, you know, other relatives coming from the Rome side. So that was sort of the, uh, was the subtraction of the mass of the ground floor and opening that up. And then there were some other things, one of which was um, developing um, neighborhoods, and I can't remember what we called them all, but 
um, out of a certain kind of opportunity, spatial opportunity, we developed workshops, like tall, uh, big open spaces for fabrication. And the idea was that those spaces would be fabricating pieces of the building that would constantly need to be replaced and repaired, like windows and shutters and doors and tables. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was like two kind of major ideas. Um, one public space and one about work. And then a third thing was that the roof would be made into a productive space that had elements of you know ener energy generation and running tracks and uh, you know other kinds of social activities. And then there were other layers in there too. But it was really you know a kind of development of th those I would say were the two major concepts: the the publicness, the transparency, and the spaces of work. Thank you. Yeah. The next section is. Uh, focus a little bit more on the academic context. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start uh, asking about your experience, like how have you managed the dichotomy of promoting minor architecture while directing a professional school that is expected to teach students how to design a yeah. major? No, it's a great question. And uh, encouraging um, what we call adaptive reuse projects. This, this semester, both Gateway Studios are doing adaptive reuse <coughs> projects. Um, which to me is uh, it's a kind of monumental shift uh, forward in accepting the fact that uh, we are not all expected to do major buildings. And in fact, um, once, you know, I mean, renovations are becoming the norm. Uh, you know, there's just, there's a lot of work doing renovations and understanding again that this is uh, important work and it's not secondary to uh, new buildings. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a kind of shift in how we conceptualize. There, it's much harder, way, way, way harder than doing a new building. It's all about constraints. And so mm -hmm. uh, constraints in a way, uh, you know, they can be um, political constraints, constraints put in place by power, but they can also just be physical constraints or code constraints, you know. So, kind of understanding, uh, or, or I would say, uh, disassembling the notion that creativity is about freedom is an important thing that I try to do within a school. That creativity is actually the opposite of freedom. Mm -hmm. It is understanding uh, how to manage constraints in a way that achieve remarkable, unexpected results. Mm -hmm. So I, one of my props that I brought, um, going back to poetry, uh, I use the fixed form in poetry a lot as a, a kind of a reference discipline. So. Um, the Sestina, the Villanelle, the Sonnet. Um, I've been using the haiku for our director's project because it's, you know, it's quick um, and, and super fun. Um, but uh, this was um, a traveling, uh, just a, a study trip uh, that our graduate students at Berkeley took um, to the Netherlands. And uh, what they had to bring back was uh, a Sestina or Villanelle about the space of the city. 
And so the rules of these poems, you know, the, the lines have to repeat, things have to rhyme in very specific ways, number, number of syllables per line, the meter, all of those things, and then how do you, uh, you know, how do you express something physical? And this one, uh, I co-taught a course on prison at Berkeley for 300 students um, with people from law and ethnic studies and history. And um, we, you know, we each had a kind of a segment for an assignment, and my assignment was to write about incarceration in fixed form. Um, and uh, the idea that the fixed form was actually analogous to the cell, the, the construction of cells, and that somehow when you write in a fixed form, you are finding a way out. So. Um, this is called escape through fixed form, the idea that you escape the form by actually writing in the form, that you escape incarceration by you know, remaining in the cell but finding ways to communicate outside of it. Um, so I'll just, I'll just pass this around. But I do think constraints are key to understanding um, how to manage to be extremely specific and effective in design as resistance. Like uh, the using language to escape the prison, like e even within the prison, like finding your space within the prison as well, not just outside. Is that a uh, well? All the stories in the book, yeah. right? The Argentine uh, mm -hmm. journalist who communicates by sight across okay. the corridor. The um, the Soviet. Uh, writer who has the tapping code and communicates the whole length of the cell. Um, lots of stories that aren't in the book. Um, a, a woman's uh, uh, prison, again, Soviet in the, in the 50s, and she discovered that when she was taken to the bathroom uh, once a day, she could like sprinkle tooth powder on a ledge and write a message in the powder. And so all of the women started communicating that way. Um, Margaret Atwood's um, uh, Handmaid's Tale, there's a scene of just passing a slip of paper through a slot between toilet stalls. Um, the, um, the example in the book of the guy who discovers that the pipe, uh, this disused water pipe, actually carries sound like three levels down, and he's able to talk to another prisoner. So the architecture itself, the architecture of confinement, becomes the escape. Mm -hmm. Either using a pipe or a wall or a slot or, or, or something. So in this case, yeah, the, the fixed form um, of you know, these things where, where lines repeat allows a kind of um, uh, communication through the, um, through the language of the, of the poem. And um, I mean, this, this is just, it's a very explicit example. Um, I took the form of the villanelle, which is my favorite, and discovered that if you turn it on its side, so there's, there's the poem, mm -hmm. and if you use the uh, fixed margin here as the foundation line of the poem and the rhyming scheme as, as the roof line, you can make it into architectural sections. So I drew the space of, uh, I think it's six or eight poems throughout this book, 
um, has architectural drawings and then uh, other fixed forms at the end. I just kind of diagram. There's one example of, uh, yeah, there's lots lots of these. Uh, and one of, the, one of the poems just felt like the Barcelona Pavilion to me. So I drew the Barcelona Pavilion and the space of the poem and, you know, just try to kind of have fun with this analogy between verbal space and built space. Thank you. I'm next. Um, you mentioned that there can be no official language of architecture. Do you think that architecture has an official language? And what do you mean by an official language? And how does that affect the way we teach architecture? Yeah, I mean, traditionally style was the official language. Right, so, so it, I mean, it was a very official language through many periods of history. And we tend to study the history of architecture through those official languages. Um, and, you know, somewhere around the 1980s, um, when uh, postmodernism, the, you know, the, the classic postmodernism, the Venturi, Michael Graves kind of postmodernism, sort of wore itself out by being co-opted by developers, suddenly architecture had no more official language as a style. It was just it was just gone, so that was really the moment when uh, theory became uh, its own kind of official language. You know, so de deconstruction theory, um, you know, various kinds of of, of tropes, uh, and meanwhile, <coughs> um, the real official language became the corporate language of building. Uh, in a quick and cost-effective way. And so it, uh, it, the, the look of that architecture sort of had a language that was not developed um, as languages had been before through architects carefully thinking about what it meant to build. And the language instead was sort of a, a combination of two things. It was a language of expediency uh, and it was a language of products. So, uh, you know, curtain wall developers uh, became extremely powerful in establishing what this new language was. And Sweet's catalog became the uh, dictionary of the new architectural language. So it, it, it you know, it, it functioned sort of in the same way as earlier traditional languages in that it was recognizable and, and repetitive, but it was coming from a completely different kind of place. And meanwhile, um, you know, the world has developed in such a way that to go back to the old kind of official language, which was closely tied to meaning, is no longer possible because meanings are, are, are fluid and people don't agree on uh, religious foundations or even necessarily um, you know, civic kinds of um, foundations. So um, you know, we're, kind of, we're kind of left with a default official language rather than an intentional official language uh, at a time when it is um, in a way very 
alienating mm -hmm. to have something that seems like an official language, which is why most people don't understand buildings anymore and they want them to just look like the Chateau Laurier again. You know, like, I mean, even this building, people don't get it yeah. because yeah, this building true. is spatial, it's not visual. It's not something to look at and people are trained to think of a building as something to look at rather than something to walk through. I wonder in the sort of the context of teaching how you find, uh, like what are the ways that we can sort of, I guess, get students up to speed for, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, and while still sort of, you know, te I guess teaching them what the official language is as understood yeah. by the community at large, but also how to subvert that and sort of... Well, I don't want to teach them what the official language is. Yeah, so I mean, it's just not even going no, there. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think what we want to teach them is, you know, it takes structure to get something to stand up. Uh, th those kinds of uh, official conditions yeah. that are based on uh, physics right. and not, not based on culture. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I think we want to teach them about uh, spatial relationships yeah. in the best possible way. I mean, I have to say, I think the Debonet exercise of the, the clay and the, the yeah. sticks and the string is kind of extraordinary mm -hmm. in... Uh, drawing out um, a kind of spatial instincts of students like at a very early point. Because um, to some extent they don't know what they're doing. It's, they're it's hard to doing. hang on to it. I think it's very hard to hang on to it once you have a list of rooms and they have to be a certain size and uh, you know the building has to retain heat and you know all of those things I think it becomes extremely difficult uh, and you know I would say the difficulty is equal to, if, I mean, to do it really well, I think the difficulty is equal to composing in music, which, you know, very, very few people are able to do. The difference with architecture is that the field has so many places where you can plug in effectively, you know? I mean, you can, you know, you can manage projects, you can, do details, you can communicate with clients, you can render things. Uh, there, there's, there's many ways. So I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we've got a ton of students studying architecture in Canada and there is, there is room for all of them. Um, whereas in something like music, there aren't that many spaces. Uh, if you feel like you want to write music and you're not like, your instincts are not uh, in that direction if you don't understand sound in the way that some people you know don't necessarily understand space there's not a whole lot of ways in to that field uh, I wanted to ask in the in the specific case of the Asbury School of Architecture and Urbanism uh, what do you think are the interiors objects and subjects and, and the second question is uh, also, how can we, like the students, re-territorialize or re-territorialize the School of Architecture? Academia in general, uh, you know, sometimes um, academic institutions develop according to uh, subjects, right? People who, who come in and, and shape and, and lead a way of thinking about something. Um, 
So, so that's the that's the subject part, uh, where it's uh, it's person driven. Um, in terms of the interiors, uh, you know, this is something. Um, I guess the bigger a faculty is, the more interiors it has. And, uh, you know, we in this very, I would say, archaic way are within a faculty of engineering and the interiors are extremely explicit. Um, my former institution, Berkeley, you know, the architecture, landscape and planning, those interiors were extremely explicit. So were the ones where, you know, Utah, where I told you I visited and the guy drilled a hole in the wall. That was about making just a comment on how explicit those interiors were. Uh, in academia, we've, um, we've taken to calling them silos. Right, this is the word that is commonly used. We don't call them rooms, we call them silos. And um, the silo uh, is actually a much more um, defined interior than a room. A room tends to share mm -hmm. an edge with another room, whereas silos uh, don't share uh, anything. So, um, I, you know, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think within this school, I don't think we have a, a siloed condition. I think we have a, a much more kind of fluid um, engagement. So um, the interiors that arise, I think they arise uh, in response to very specific situations. So if, for instance, we are searching for a new faculty member, you might hear arguments from, you know, a, a room, say, uh, that's all about conservation versus a room that's all about urban design. And do we want to add to that room or that room? Or do we want someone who will break through the wall between those two rooms? And this is, um, you know, I, I mean, I've only been a member of architecture faculties, but I know in uh, faculties of literature, you know, there are these rooms between poets, poets and fiction writers and nonfiction writers, like really closed rooms, um, or rooms between people who write in a postmodern style versus, you know, people who honor 19th century conventions of writing. Um, I think the thing with academia in the best circumstances is that there are always debates going on. This is what should happen, that no matter what the rooms or how many rooms or whether the rooms are about style or about, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, typologies or historical periods, that it's the conversations among those rooms that make the student experience something really uh, different from what they would get if they were just reading all the books and, and taking all the tests and writing all the papers. Debates among faculty, I think, are sort of the essence of what makes the, uh, the academic experience unique. So, so that's, the, that's the interiors part. Um, the object part, that one's too hard for me. That's too abstract. I don't know how to do that one. Too much for you, Skip. If we take the question in the building, uh, in the building uh, aspect, how can students deteriorate or re the school? Uh, 
Yeah, well, it happens a lot, right? <laughs> it happens too much. Um, <laughs> too much. Because yesterday, you know, a class took over the street and it's absolutely explicitly forbidden because we have a disabled staff member and they block her way to the restroom. And so we cannot deterritorialize that main street ever, okay. Okay. right? And there's a good reason for it. So, I, you know, I think um, this school has always uh, delighted in uh, taking over spaces for other purposes. I think that's, you know, someone asked me the other day if they could have a bed up in the third year studio. But no. <laughs> no. Um, nevertheless, they will deterritorialize it by rolling out a sleeping bag. Or something. So I think, um, you know, like in terms of uh, how the rest of the campus views this school, it is that it is a culture of deterritorialization, and they don't like it <laughs> because it, it makes it, it makes work for people. But of course, uh, you know, it, it the spatial practice I think is something um, again that if there are constraints around those spatial practices, uh, that actually makes some of the actions more profound. But when the actions are super radical, uh, it indicates that something is too majorly controlled, right? That there is not enough freedom, and so the reaction is magnified to counteract that so this is why, you know, uh, in general, kind of spatial protest in university campuses is such a, a good kind of indicator, you know, of a broader cultural situation because you expect the academy to be fairly open, right? And yet when they're not, when something is, is closing down, that's when a, a kind of uh, activism which tends to be manifest as a spatial practice becomes a message that resonates far beyond the academy. So it's, it's really interesting. And this school, it, it lends itself you know, to spatial practices that I think don't require uh, really radical acts because the building itself was actually designed to accommodate that. So back to a much earlier question, can architects design in a way that allows a kind of minor things to happen, the Cornells definitely had that in mind when they designed this building. They wanted things to happen. They wanted the building to change. They, they absolutely foresaw that the building would uh, experiment with itself. That's great. That's a great answer. Um, I'm going to rephrase my question just a little bit. Um, Minor architecture is rooted in political choices and taking a stance, or as you said earlier, disrupting the major architecture. So my original question was, how do you prepare your students to make ethical decisions during their studies and the design process? I guess now what I'd like to ask instead is, how do you get them to identify where they can do mm. and act in a minor? Yeah, I actually want to go back to the, the ethical. Oh, OK. Just because. Um, <laughs> You know, I often think about comparisons between architecture and medicine. Um, you know, here they are, two professions, same amount of education, you know, go out and do good in the world. Um, but, you know, the doctor's first principle is do no harm. And 
for architects to do no harm, I think would require, in most cases, that we do nothing. <laughs> so, so that's the ethical question for me. How do we, how do we do no harm? And how do we measure our notion of harm? So within the school, and um, this is just, uh, it, you know, it's just an example, but I feel that we do harm in the school by producing trash. And so for me, one of my questions about architectural education is how can we accomplish everything we want to accomplish and not produce trash? Especially at this, at this moment when we profess to be at the forefront of the debates around climate change and ecology. So um, it, it's just an example, you know, of, of how we position ourselves and how complicated it is to position ourselves in a way where we can legitimately assume an ethical position. And, you know, I, I fly a lot, you know, so that's my carbon footprint. I'm always thinking about, you know, how, how much of an offset do I need to buy? Uh, how, how much do I need? You know, I don't have a car. How, you know, how, what can I do to mitigate that? But I know that it's something that I can't be proud of, you know, in, in a kind of personal sense. So um, the ethical questions, I think, are extremely difficult. And when those ethical questions become not just personal ones, but ones that are connected with the, the fabric of a school where we, you know, we want to stand for something. Um, you know, as a, as a director, I have to decide what do I want this school to stand for. But on the other hand, I can't make that happen. I can only know that I want it to happen. I can't make it happen. So, um, you know, other things maybe are, are going to be easier. Like, I want this school to stand for inclusivity. And so if we get the restrooms to happen in a good way, that will be something where, you know, I can say that my own ethical position is being matched by something that's that's happening. So I think it's it's really, really hard. And you know, when when people tune into this stuff, um, it, it's again very, very fluid. So I remember a student at Berkeley uh, who came into our three-year masters, and this was probably again early 90s, and after the first semester he dropped out. And I said, Why are you dropping out? He said, I just can't stand the way we use paper. So he could not bear to make a drawing and then throw it away. Like somehow this like, you know, it's, it's like, um, a, a, you know, a vegetarian or something, you know, coming at something from such a deep ethical place that he realized he could not do this field. He could not do it. And I completely thought, this is so ridiculous. I've never heard of anything so ridiculous in my life. But I recognized you know, that there was this do no harm in him that meant one thing, and he could not get himself across that line. So I, I mean, I would just love to know where everybody's 
line is. I think, again, that would be a fascinating discussion. Mm -hmm. And we had it a little bit with when all the heads of schools get together twice a year, which we did a few weeks ago. And we all just said, you know, somebody said, what are you all doing about climate change? You know, what is that conversation within your school? Where are you addressing it? And, you know, we said, should, should we be getting together twice a year in some city, you know, some of us flying 3,000 miles? Or should we be doing this, you know, by, by video conference? You know, what does it really cost for us to assemble? And we decided, well, it's actually really important to get together in a room. So let's figure out what else we can do. Can we get our schools to, can we plant trees somewhere, you know, to, to do carbon offsets so that we can collectively, like all the schools of architecture in Canada, take a position on, on this, uh, you know, it, in a way where we've thought it through and we've said, this is what we believe, this is why we're flying all the time, and this is what we're doing. So I think there's just the conversations themselves are the most important thing right now, not necessarily the actions, but, but first the conversations to kind of understand what are the number of directions that uh, people are uh, coming at their ethical positions um, in terms of um, you know indigenous architects and, and you know the Canadian position, um, the director at Laurentian is a Metis uh, architect, and you know his position with his group of indigenous architects is only fifteen in Canada, is nothing about us without us. So he doesn't want a single decision being made about indigenous issues without one of them at the table. That's the, that's their ethical position. So then, um, to add to this, when with your students, do you explore this more through studios, or are the conversations occurring during architectural research and kind of informally, like what we're doing now during interviews and whatnot, to bring it back to how you get your students to be prepared to answer these questions? Yeah. Um, yeah. All, all, of, all of the above. I mean, you know, I, I bring up the, um, you know, the material, uh, you know, uh, waste issue, you know, all the time with, mm -hmm. with faculty. Um, you know, I talk to students about, uh, I mean, I find that um, students actually sometimes have such a high ethical bar that they are almost paralyzed, you know, especially when they're dealing with a site that is fraught with some kind of historical uh, you know consequence and um, that's where you know I feel like the um, the freedom of doing things in a studio context is the opportunity to fail and so I you know I, th I think uh, um, exploring those uh, those thresholds through design work and understanding through conversations, you know, we could not actually do this. This would be extremely offensive to people. You don't know that until you draw it and have people talk about it. So the, the freedom, the, the immaterial nature of design within architecture school, I think is the best laboratory for generating debates. When people can actually look at something and say, huh, you know, that is really interesting, but, but without, you know, without considering this, uh, it would be extremely dangerous to, uh, you know, propose this in this context. 
so I mean, I mean um, conversations around student work, I think, are at the heart of architecture school. And certainly that work can be written work as well as design work. Mm -hmm. You know, conversations that happen in seminars. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's a very good answer. Um, I'm also asking the, sec the next question. In your book, uh, you state that workplaces are configured to maintain a stability, a euphemism for obedience, production, efficiency, division of labor, and alienation of laborers from their spaces of production. Can you speak to your interpretation of stability as a means of enforcing obedience in the workplace? Uh, what other workplace models are there, and how can they better suit the individual talents and needs of its employees? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, since I wrote this, the culture has evolved enormously. So, um, you know, the, uh, I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's prevalent in the most um, moneyed uh, institutions, the Silicon Valley uh, institutions, you know, where people come to work and, uh, you know, they have a gym and they have, you know, their collaborative uh, workspaces and they have, you know, any snack they could possibly want and uh, they have flex hours and, and all of that. So, um, you know, I would say that uh, the um, the kind of wealth uh, that has developed within certain work industries has allowed uh, a very, very different kind of workplace model to evolve, where uh, it's really fun to come to work. And other kinds of places um, you know that um, I mean Walmart you know is is still uh, about this notion of obedience clocking in uh, knowing where you sit knowing where your zone is um, and uh, I mean I, I'm, I'm not remembering exactly where this uh, what chapter is this in can you remember uh, it's quoted on your it, in the first chapter, or in your introduction, possibly. Yeah, on page five. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's um, quite early in your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think I'm using, the, if it's in the introduction, I'm using it as an example of uh, spatial authority. Okay. So it's, it's not just that, you know, buildings are, are organized in this uh, kind of obedient fashion, but that the, the buildings are actually modeled on a kind of system of organizing of human beings to get the most out of them, to have them be as efficient as possible. So I'm, I'm using them more as a metaphor for an architectural condition rather than uh, talking about the, the workplace itself as a piece of architecture. Can I elaborate on that question? Yeah. Um, or ask uh, an additional question? So, like, like for example, like you were saying, Shopify or even Google, mm. they, they kind of uh, create this padding, in a sense, um, in their spaces for the employees to have a better uh, general experience working mm -hmm. there. But what about the actual work itself? Like, how, how does it, for, for example, um, in an architectural uh, practice in an office, uh, when someone's very interested in doing a particular thing, but they don't get to do it, mm. or at least get to explore it, how do you accommodate, or how does one accommodate that interest? Yeah, when I, I there's mean, no place for it. Or 
I'm going to throw a question back at you. Why is this question in the academic section? Um, specifically, I was curious about your use of uh, stability in comparison with obedience. Mm. Um, and I think that's an academic question. Mm. Stability often is a place of safety for folks. When you feel like your environment and your conditions are stable, it's not necessarily that you're a slave to the stability, it's that you have established an area where you're comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I was really uh, captivated by your use and interpretation of stability as a means of enforcing obedience. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that I've really thought of in yeah. that context. So that's why it was an academic endeavor, I suppose. Mm. Well, I, I mean, what I mean by stability in this context is stability, economic stability uh, for the organization, right? Okay. It, it, is, it is maintaining the flow of work and thus the flow of income and the, the flow of profit to shareholders and, and so forth. It's not about the stability of the person sitting at the desk, it's the stability of the, I see. Of the organization itself. I see. So, um, uh, what was your follow-up? My follow-up was uh, in an architectural Oh, in practice. an architect. Yeah. So, I, I don't even want to go there because, um, yeah, how should I say this? Um, I feel like people who, uh, who decide to go into professions in general um, are in a world of privilege. Uh, I mean, my, my son is an ER doctor, and he sometimes, you know, comes home and complains, you know, about, you know, the schedule of the hours or the, you know, the people he has to work with or what. And, you know, I, I don't want to hear it. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like uh, this notion of, and I guess that's how I feel about the, the Google employees, you know, to, to what degree do we um, do make work not feel like work? And I, I guess I'm, I'm of the opinion that work, uh, work is a good counterpoint to leisure and that there are certain aspects of work which will always be less than exactly what we would like to be doing at that, at that moment in time. And, and, you know, looking at people who have no choice in terms of their, you know, eight hours of work or whatever. There is absolutely nothing inserted to make it um, fun or interesting or whatever. Uh, I, I would rather think about that kind of problem and not focus on what if an architect intern is suddenly, you know, just doing four, four months of, uh, you know, uh, code review or or whatever. I mean, other people can think about that, but it's not it's not on my mind. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think you've touched on this quite a bit, but. Um, Maybe you can expand a bit. Do you see architectural education as porous and an opportunity to make architecture less stable? And those, those are terms that you've used in uh, your chapter on the myth of nature. Yeah, I mean, um, you're, again, um, sort of extrapolating, uh, you know, a physical condition to uh, 
a, a kind of institutional condition. Mm. Um, so yes and yes, um, and uh, you know interdisciplinarity to me is at the root of how any discipline becomes porous. Mm. It's how how does it how does it leak out uh, to other other places and um, you know we just had um, Mokena Makeka here for. Um, give a lecture but also spend a couple of days in the school and uh, because Ozair Saluji is from South Africa I said you know do you want to just invite a few people for dinner with him so last night uh, he invited three people to come to my place with Mokena and one was from uh, geography one was from uh, women's studies one was from uh, anthropology three people I have never met uh, you know and and the conversation you know, found th this kind of thread of threads going through our, our various rooms or silos or whatever with uh, a kind of South African context as the, uh, the thing that was allowing that porosity to happen. So, uh, you know, like what I said about the debates around student work, I think that the conversations outside our walls are this kind of porosity, you know, that uh, celebrates why we're all on a campus, you know, why we're why we're not, um, you know, all in in separate places. So porosity to me is uh, the interdisciplinary mechanism working uh, constantly to uh, poke holes in the the envelopes that keep our disciplines separate. And then the second half, um, the second half, uh, architecture less stable. I'm not sure it's connected uh, to the the porosity, um, but it, but again, uh, that would just be another example of what I see happening in the the culture of the school, yeah, where yeah. the students are already they've already embraced that narrative that they're designing something which is inherently unstable and again I'm not sure what has what has made that uh, transformation happen over the last like decade and a half but it has happened so I think it's it's just part of the atmosphere yeah. okay, thank you um, so how does an architecture school establish its values as a framework to work within? Is having a value system important, dangerous, or irrelevant? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the question extends you know, to the, the scale of the university as well. So right now, there's one of these uh, strategic uh, action plan things happening on campus. And, you know, I mean, basically, the bigger the group, the more general those principles become. And the question is, when are they so general, you know, that we just, uh, you know, we didn't need to go through months and months and months of workshops and focus groups to say, we want to do good work in the world, we want to address climate change, we want to collaborate more, <laughs> you know. If, if that's what comes out after all of those months of work, what have we really accomplished and how does it change our behavior? So in terms of the school, um, 
you know, again, it's a very, uh, it's a very, um, I think, difficult uh, thing to do to find a set of values that everyone can buy into that are specific enough to make some kind of action possible. And um, I mean, my, my own, uh, my kind of metaphor when I came here was to turn the school inside out, you know, because I just felt that we had reached a point where architecture could no longer just talk about itself. It had to, it, it had to become uh, not the center, but uh, it had to become part of the edge conditions of, of other things, which I feel are, you know, more, um, more important uh, at this moment in time. But it is not, I mean, it's, it's certainly guided a lot of things that I've tried to do here, but it is not, I don't think, something that, you know, everyone buys into. And I don't, I just don't think it's, I've never seen a school, actually, where a whole faculty could agree on something that was specific enough to guide an action. So what, what more often happens is that there are two, th two or three things and maybe a director is more aligned with one of them than with the others, but there's still a way of allowing all of them to happen, right? Allowing a multiplicity of, of actions and why not, you know, why not? Uh, why, why would a place, you know, only be known for, for one thing? Um, but there, you know, there, I think there's, there's, uh, you know, schools that try to stand for one thing. Uh, there's this school at Notre Dame in Indiana, which I think still tries to stand for classicism. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if they still do or not, but until recently, that, you know, you thought of that school and that was it. Uh, Berkeley in the 1960s, you know, was the first school that said, we're about social justice. We're not about, you know, uh, beauty, we're not about, um, you know, style, uh, we're not about, um, you know, economic uh, whatever, we're about social justice. That fell apart very quickly, because as soon as you hire, you know, a couple of people who are, you know, designers and who are going to propel design forward based on, uh, you know, aesthetics or, uh, you know, material exploration or whatever, you know, suddenly you have uh, you have two things that the school stands for instead of instead of just one. This is just the, the nature, I think, of all institutions. Um, I think in Europe, maybe it is a little bit different because architectural education is really about learning to be an architect. Like it's very much about, you know, it's like taking the internship here and, and loading it into, and so you just, there's so much you have to know that 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 is the mission, and the, and the mission is maybe more clear in those kinds of contexts. Um, what is the role of the teacher to the student? Sort of a basic question. What do you what are you trying to impart or extract when you're when you're teaching the student? The second question, I don't think, uh, or the second part of the question, I don't think I want to ask it. It's kind of unless you think it's a good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 
uh, you know, I think everybody who t who teaches um, develops their own way of thinking about this, and people who teach as long as I have, 40, 40 years now, have gone through, you know, many phases of what it is that we're trying to teach when we, when we teach students. And it certainly depends on the level. Um, you know, this one school of thought that you begin, you know, very open in architectural education and you narrow and narrow and become much more explicit. And so toward the end, students are learning, you know, uh, very, very precise things. Uh, you know, another school of thought that says, you know, start with all of the, the very disciplinary stuff and things become, you know, more open, uh, you know, later on. I guess my, my feeling is more like, a, um, I, I would say like this, like, <laughs> like that kind of shape where it's very open at the beginning because you need to get students excited about their discipline. <laughs> and then you teach them, you know, very specific things and you know they reach this middle where uh, they sort of know how to design a building you know they know all of these various scales and you know questions to ask and then you know they they get to do the thesis at the end which is the most open thing they'll probably ever do ever um, so you know that's that's sort of my thinking about this school that it starts open, it narrows down, and it opens back up again. And so in that in that middle, you know, if you never learned another thing, you could still go to work, pass the exams, and so forth. But then you get to kind of have fun again, and maybe discover your own set of questions that you're going to ask for the decades that follow within whatever constraints you choose for yourself. Do you think that that bottleneck is a... Uh, Gateway the, studio. Okay. Yeah. Okay. In our school, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is really fun, you know. It's, it's, yeah. it's this incredibly fun time because you know enough to do enough and you also know that you're going to then get to take all of that and take it somewhere else sort of on your own agenda the following year so I, I just I, I like the trajectory um, a lot yeah so we have come to the last question and I had a closing question that I think you have already uh, addressed in, in different ways it was about uh, how can architects contribute to create or facilitate lines of flight? So if, if you want to give an, a last example of that, or maybe if you want to uh, tell us which one is your favorite minor architect, architecture that you want to share with us. I don't maybe that, that uh, tin can telephone through the wall. <laughs> okay. yeah. All the prison examples, Sorry. all the prison examples. Yeah. And I, you know, I, will, I will write more about that at some at some point, um, because I feel like it's it's so powerful. Um, but you know, there's there's lots of other examples uh, the that you know are are in the book the the Tower of David, the um, Grand Hotel in Mozambique, mm -hmm. which was designed you know as this luxury hotel, and now <laughs> again two thousand people yeah. live there. Um, I very much want to visit, you know, and see what's what's going on there. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, there's just, um, there's so many examples that will never be written about or, or be visible um, because they're, they're just, you know, the journalist does, doesn't go there mm -hmm. or, you know, it hasn't been discovered yet. So I think what is exciting, you know, is to continue to learn about these examples, everything from an architecture school taking over a storefront in Calgary, you know, to 2,000 people occupying uh, a, t a hotel built for, you know, British dignitaries in the 1950s. Yeah, so that yeah, was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so amazing. much for you know taking on the entire agenda. It was a lot, and it was really that was fun actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Thanks. Amazing. Thank you very much.